Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider how fiction helps us understand the path that we're on and the reason that we're here. This week, it's as simple as that. Yes. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> Just that. We heard about a new book by a debut author that sounded fantastic and was getting rave reviews. The book is The Immortal King Rao, and the author is Wahini Vara. The New York Times called King Rao a monumental achievement, beautiful and brilliant, heartbreaking and wise, but also pitiless, which may be controversial to list among its virtues, but is in fact essential to its success. Vulture described it as a trippy novel that marries the family saga with a biotech satire. I'm struggling to find a way to describe this book that leaves all the fun of it intact. I was surprised, actually, that so many reviews included detailed plot summaries, because one of the most interesting things to me, both as a reader and a writer, was the way that Wahini withholds and then doles out information. But just to give you a very basic overview, there are three main storylines. One is King Rao's childhood with his Dalit family on a coconut grove in South India. The second is the rise of capital C, Coconut, the Apple-esque computer company that King Rao starts after immigrating to the United States. And the third is the story of King Rao's daughter, Athena, who's been imprisoned for allegedly being involved in the death of her father. For me, reading the book felt like following three separate breadcrumb trails that all led to the same mouse hole. Part of the power of the book is that it's speculative fiction that feels very close to the world we know now. So you get lines like these. The defining sentiment of this late capitalist period was dissatisfaction, and it began to take alarming forms. Mass murders became so frequent that they no longer trended on social. And also this, because the backdrop of the book is an irreversibly warming planet Earth. The problem is that there's little left on Earth for humans to master. We have sucked the Earth of its life-giving marrow so that no one else can have it but us. We began by creating fire, and now here we are, standing in its glorious blaze. We humans have become so excellent at conquering that we have succeeded even in conquering ourselves. Yeah, it's a really good book. And we had such a good time talking to Wahini. Just a few words about her before we get to the interview. Wahini Vara has worked as a Wall Street Journal technology reporter and as the business editor for The New Yorker. From a Dalit background, she's a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop and an O. Henry Prize winner. The Immortal King Rao is her first novel. It was a New York Times editor's choice and was named a Best Book of the Year by NPR and Esquire. The Immortal King Rao was 13 years in the making, and Wahini started it while she was at grad school on a two-year hiatus from her job as a tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We asked her whether there were particular stories or subjects from her time at the journal that she felt like she had to pursue in a novel. Here's what she said. I graduated in 2004, and then I left for grad school in 2008. So there was this four-year period, and it was like the period when Google went public and Facebook was founded um, and YouTube was founded and growing. And 
my job was to write about these big software companies like Oracle, which was run by Larry Ellison, one of the richest people in the world. And then I also started writing about Facebook only because nobody else was writing about Facebook because it was still this small company at the time. So on the one hand, I was like meeting and writing about people like Larry Ellison. And then on the other hand, meeting and writing about people like Mark Zuckerberg and found them really fascinating, Um, you know, partly because they were so powerful and ambitious, but then also because I thought they faced these constraints that like weren't easily visible from the outside, Um, just the way in which they sort of can make their own decisions, but also were very constrained by like what their shareholders wanted them to do, what their investors, the people who actually own the companies wanted them to do. And, you know, like in literature, you can't write a good character unless like they face constraints and they face pressures. And like, you don't normally think of like a very powerful tech CEO as facing those, but they do, which I found interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. You were also the business editor for the New Yorker's website. Were there stories from your time there that made their way into the book? I remember a story I wrote about shareholder letters. Um, Traditionally, these letters that companies write to communicate with their shareholders are like very formal, kind of legalistic. But then in like in the 2000s or so, there had been this shift where like companies like Google started using this like chattier tone as if they were just like talking to you as a friend. So it'd be like, dear shareholder, you know, um, they were trying to be looser in their language, um, more conversational. And I found that very interesting. And that was very much the impetus for like having this whole book be addressed to a dear shareholder. Um, you preface the book with two really intriguing quotations. The first is from the French economist, Thomas Piketty, and I'm going to read it for listeners who haven't read the quotations at the beginning of your book. Once the choice has been made to organize economic, commercial, and property relations at the transnational level, it seems obvious that the only way to transcend capitalism and ownership society is to work out some way of transcending the nation state. But exactly how can this be done? And then the second quote is from a third or fourth century BC Chinese text, the Shuangzi. When the superior man has no choice but to oversee all under heaven, there is no better policy than non-action. So why did you choose each of these quotes and what's the relationship between them? They were very intentionally chosen. Um, so the first one is from this book, Capital and Ideology by Piketty that um, talks about how the evolution of our systems of government and our systems of organizing economic relationships has sort of like influenced everything about how we live. And he's pointing out here, it's just, you know, while in the past economic relations were and property relations were sort of organized within countries, now that's all, like everything is sort of transnational, the way we do business, the way we trade, um, the way we purchase things and sell things. And yet we're still organized at the sort of national level. And so he's posing this question about like, what might happen to transcend the nation state? He says, but exactly how can this be done? Um, There's also this assumption in this question that transcending the nation state is something we should try to do. Mm -hmm. But I loved um, setting that against this quote from the Zhuangzi about non-action because the author um, Zhuangzi and the sort of like unknown people who also collaborated on this text are sort of seen by some as as proto-anarchist figures. Like there's a lot in that book about the usefulness of social systems in the first place at any level. 
And so the book sort of conceives of this person, the superior man, you know, we might today just say the superior person, right? Like a very wise person, a very knowledgeable person. Um, And it posits that if that person is in charge of everything or has the the potential to be in charge of everything, the best thing to do is, is nothing, right? Like actually, you know, figuring out some way of transcending the nation state, for example, like may not be a desirable goal. And then in the book, like I'm very much grappling with two competing ideas of like how the world should be organized um, in this sort of imagined future that's not too different from our current state of affairs. And I think each of those um, competing ideas sort of embodies the ideas embedded in these two epigraphs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also fascinating to read about the rise of capitalism in post-colonial India alongside the rise of the tech industry in the U.S. starting in the 1970s. Can you say a bit about the similarities and differences there and what made you excited to explore them? Yeah, so in the novel, King Rao grows up on this sort of family coconut farm where everything is done communally. Um, The work of the family is done communally. The family profits, instead of being sort of doled out to workers as wages, are sort of used to, you know, feed the family and make repairs and do everything communally. And then over the course of the plot of the book, you know, around the 1960s, that changes. There's a sort of fracturing of that communal approach. And it mirrors something that was taking place in India during that time in general. Farming was becoming more corporate. And so family farms, in order to compete, had to take a similar approach. Um, And so there was not only a fracturing of a certain approach to business, but also like a fracturing of family relationships too. Um, I think that like this fracturing of family that I was sort of writing about is like something that's probably inherent to global capitalism too, as people, you know, now travel away from their ancestral homes to find work, sometimes travel, you know, from one country to another to find work. Um, Global capital is dispersed, right? Um, I wanted to like show that on a very domestic scale on the family farm and then also show how in the 1970s and beyond technology has played a role in a similar kind of fracturing of human relationships. There's a fairy tale quality to Athena's upbringing on Blake Island. She and her father, whom she adores, live there alone. He's king, which means she must be a princess. There are gardens and fruit orchards, and it all feels pretty idyllic, except she must never, ever go into the forest because there's some great danger there. At the same time, some of the speculative parts of the story hardly feel speculative at all. A world governed by a corporation where citizens are shareholders, where worth is determined by social capital, and an algorithm controls so much important decision-making, and of course, a planet on fire. I mean... There are days where those things seem ripped from the headlines to me. Can you say something about the interplay between the romanticized and the realistic and the speculative and the realistic in your book? One thing I was trying to explore in this book wasn't necessarily like how the world will really look in 20 or 30 years, but more like if you took where we are now and how it's evolved from 20 or 30 or 50 years ago or 75 years ago, and sort of like Im- imagined what would hap- happen if this pr- trajectory continued with no change. Mm. That's the world I was trying to put on the page and explore. Um, 
in part so that the dystopian future sections of the book have some relationship to our current reality. And so the trick was to like really try to understand how these things are functioning today, like the use of algorithms in society, um, the development so far of climate change. And then I did some actual research. You know, I read those intergovernmental reports on what the climate could look like in 20 or 50 years. There's some modeling websites you can look at that like actually show um, how coastlines will erode. And so I looked at all those things to kind of imagine what the future world would look like. You know, at the same time, you know, there's a way in which humans ourselves don't change, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so like the human relationships that are set in this sort of dystopian future, I think like don't function all that differently from human relationships now or in the 1950s or in the 1850s for that matter. Um, I also wanted to show how for those with privilege, a sort of climate change impacted world in 20 or 40 years is not going to have as much of an effect as it will have on people without privilege, right? Or with less privilege. Mm -hmm. And so it was certainly deliberate that I had Athena and her father, King Rao, who's fallen from grace, but still has a lot of resources. It was deliberate to have them live on this island that is idyllic because they have the resources to live somewhere like that. You know, um, climate change will eventually impact this island. It hasn't quite yet, but like they're able to have all the food they need, all the comforts that they need. You know, it's rustic, but it's rustic by choice. So that was like that on purpose. Yeah. So legacy and remembrance are important themes in the book. Early on, a new gravel road is laid through the family's village in India, which is going to transform the village from sort of an ignored outpost to a vital connection between market towns. And when the plan is announced, Grandfather Rao, the patriarch of the family, says to King, who's a child, remember this. Don't ever forget it. It's important that this happened and we were all part of it. And then later in the book, the narrator, Athena Rao, says that one possible answer to the question, what makes humans unique, is... Our defining characteristic is being able to pass something of our lived experience from one human to another, thus ensuring our advancement as a species. And yet, when it comes to remembrance and the passing on of stories, you end the book on an ambivalent or at least an enigmatic note when Athena says, one day this will all be over, yet the fact will remain that we were here once. For what? We kept demanding. For what? For what? For what? What's your answer to this question for you personally? Mm, I mean, I'm fascinated by, I consider myself an ambitious person. You know, um, people have sometimes asked me whether I see myself in Athena, the narrator of the book, who's a young woman. And I do certainly, but I haven't been asked whether I see myself in King. And it's also true that I see myself in King, you know, like I put all of my sort of rapacious um, ambition in King as a character. And I relate to that. hungry ambition and also honestly like the desire to be recognized like all of the sort of unsavory aspects of ambition as well like I I feel those right um Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us do and you know I kind of love that about being human I like being ambitious and at the same time I do think there's a relationship between that sort of human drive and the way in which we sort of destroy everything around us you know um And so it sort of follows maybe 
that like this question, you know, like, what are we here for? Like, what are we meant to be doing? That sort of like that drives ambition is a problematic question. And as you said, those lines that you read come toward the end of the book. I don't know that I have an answer to the question of like, is this good or is it bad? You know, like, are we too ambitious? Should we not be ambitious? Is ambition important? I don't know, but I find it like kind of fascinating and challenging and worrisome and just an interesting question. And so I wanted to like uh, leave readers with that question toward the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. So last year, you co-wrote an essay for The Believer called Ghosts, which was about the death of your sister and which was adapted for an episode of This American Life. Your co-writer was an AI model that was being trained to write human-like texts. And I have to say, there were moments when I had chills reading that essay for all kinds of reasons. For readers who aren't familiar with it, can you explain what it was and tell us a bit about what the writing experience was like for you? So there's this AI algorithm called GPT-3 that was created by this lab in the Bay Area. And what it does is you feed it some language, you know, a couple of words, even a couple of paragraphs or, or a page, and then it continues that piece of writing for you. So you might start a sentence and it completes the sentence, or you might give it three paragraphs and it writes three more paragraphs. I had actually, as a journalist, profiled um, one of the founders of this lab, a guy named Sam Altman in the Bay Area, and found it really fascinating. Like as a creative writer, found the idea fascinating and wanted to play with it. And so I got access to the algorithm to a place where I could play around with it. And I just started practicing with all kinds of things. Like I fed it pieces of work that had already been published. I tried to write something fictional with it. And as I did that, it occurred to me that like the one thing that this thing, the maybe like most interesting use of something like this is to like try to write something that one has a really hard time writing oneself. And for me, that has always been the death of my sister. Like I've had a really hard time talking about her death and the grief that followed. I haven't really written about it, though it's appeared in my fiction, you know, in various forms. And so I started trying to write about my sister's death and my grief with this algorithm. So what I did at the beginning was I gave it just a sentence um, saying that my sister was diagnosed with cancer when we were young. And then I let it write the whole rest of, you know, another couple of paragraphs and it got it completely wrong, you know, um, or rather what it came up with was totally different from my own experience with my sister in the version it came up with. My sister recovers and she lives and it's fine. And in reality, of course, she died. And so I tried again. I started with that same first sentence, but then I gave it some more of my own language. And then the algorithm, GPT-3, still got it wrong, quote unquote, but there was something slightly more interesting about the way in which it got it wrong. And so I just kept sort of like trying new iterations of this and each time giving it more of my language. And as I gave it more of my own language, it had more to work with and sort of like started um, kind of echoing more and more the tone of my language and the reality of my experience in a very uncanny way, I think. And so that's the essay. The essay sort of like shows all the various iterations one by one of my experience trying to co-write this essay about grief with GPT-3. That is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, and reading those iterations, we'll link to it in our show notes so people who want to read it can. But there are moments where it's just the AI is absurd, like the whole lacrosse thing. I don't know what that was about. But then there were moments that 
were really moving and profound. And, um, and I'm thinking, wow, a computer is coming up with this. <laughs> this is really yeah, remarkable. Me too. Me too. Um, like for me, some of the most profound, meaningful moments of the essay are things that I didn't write and that the AI wrote instead. Yeah, that's a remarkable thing. You know, something that really struck me as we were talking to Wahini is that a lot of people refer to the book as satirical, but Wahini doesn't think of it as satire at all. She says it's meant to be a realistic picture of what the world would look like if we continue on the path we're on now. I suppose that path leads somewhere so dire that our instinct is to tell ourselves that it's not true. I'm guessing it's also the case that Wahini's interest in and experience with advanced technology like AI contributes to her ability to see that path as so many of us are shying away from it. Her essay describing her writing interactions with AI alone, I mean, the language that the AI comes up with is at times both sort of wondrously and almost frighteningly poetic and profound. I mean, I keep hearing that AI has gotten sophisticated, but I hadn't explored it myself. There are so many signals in the world right now about what could well be coming, and they're mind-boggling and in some ways exciting and in many ways scary. I really admire Wahini's willingness to just grapple with what's happening. So do you have an answer to that question for what? I mean, right. The question is like, why are we here? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Tell me, (laughs) because if you do, I think our listeners would really want to know. Yeah. I mean, it's a question that's been front of mind for me, particularly in recent months. Years. For whatever reason. Yeah. Years. And, And I don't know. I mean, the best I've been able to come up with for myself, I think, is to assess, to try to figure out, to try to help. What about you? Well, I've always thought that what gives life meaning for us is our relationships with other people. But Wahini's ambivalence about ambition, I have to say, gave me pause. And I suppose it's because I share it. You know, the idea that you try to leave the world a better place than you found it, who can argue with that? I mean, yes, definitely. But then when I start to unpack what that means, it it gets more complicated for me that desire for growth, to do more, have more, be more. I think it's likely that urge is baked into what it means to be human. But at the same time, I also think it's highly overrated. Well, yeah. And as you say, I mean, the, the key word there is better, right? Like right. we have to really assess what's not just better different. Mean. <laughs> not different, not easier, better. What does that mean? Right. Yeah. And I think I'm going to say that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Wahini online at wahinivara.com and on Twitter at wahinivara. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and